We'll try that one more time. Good morning. Hey, there are a few people awake. I know it's a Saturday morning, and it's been cold all week long, but we are so glad that you are here. Um, and I do know that there will be several others that will be uh, streaming in here uh, in a little bit. So we're, we're thankful, thankful that you uh, moved to the front. Um, just so that you'll know uh, a little bit about this conference, uh, Pastor Abi Todd, who will be coming in just a second, he's going to tell you a little bit more about the idea that kind of birthed this conference and specifically what, what today will look like. Uh, I just wanted to give a word of welcome. My name is Cody McNutt, and I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist in Covington. Uh, I, I primarily shepherd and lead our downtown campus here. Uh, pastor Abi, who you'll hear from in just a minute, uh, joined us about six or seven months ago and gives leadership to our Haynes Creek campus, which is in Oxford, Georgia. Uh, and so First Baptist Covington is hosting this across both of our campuses, even though we're having it at our facility downtown. Uh, it really has been led and promoted primarily by our Haynes Creek campus. I just wanted to give a word of welcome to you uh, and let you know that there is coffee uh, out front if you missed it as you came in, feel free to just stand up and go grab a cup real quick uh, and return to your seat. There are restrooms for those of you that are not familiar with our uh, complex here, just straight out the doors uh, of the foyer here and to your left, our restrooms are uh, kind of in the back corner of this building. I'm going to say a word of prayer and I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Abi. He'll give a few words of introduction and introduce our first speaker. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we love you. We are so grateful for the gospel. We are so grateful for what the gospel has done in each and every one of our lives in transferring us from the domain of darkness and placing us in the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you, Lord, that this gospel that saves us, this faith that justifies us, is also the faith that sanctifies us. It's the faith and it's the gospel that helps us as sinful people see how the blood of Jesus breaks down every barrier. And so, Father, this morning as uh, we have brothers and sisters gathered from uh, multiple churches and denominations, we just ask that you would be in our midst, that you would speak to us, that you would use these speakers for your glory, and that in everything that is said and done, that, Father, that it might conform us more into the image of Christ, for it is in his name that we pray, amen. Thank you, Pastor Cody. My name is Abby Todd. It's like, it's like Bobby without the B. I have to explain that. You're going to call me Obi. It's fine, but it's Abby. Um, I, of course, uh, as, as Cody said, I'm the campus pastor at Haynes Creek. We're in Oxford. Um, we, this, this was kind of birthed out of a conversation between Lee, who you'll meet very shortly, and myself. Uh, and uh, we just thought... Um, it was time to maybe just sit down and, and talk about uh, the gospel and how it shapes the way different races interact with one another. Um, and so I woke up this morning, and I was drinking my coffee, and I turned on the news, and uh, the government is shut down. And, uh, and I listened some more, and it's because of immigration, and it just occurred to me that 
race is an inescapable topic in our country. You can't, it, it's part of the American experience. And yet, ironically, our churches talk so seldom about it. And I, Paul, and not just Paul, the scriptures bear witness that race is a part of the beautiful, glorious plan of God to send the gospel to the nations and claim one people. We don't have to wait for another march or another massacre to talk about how God claims one people in Christ through the shed blood of Jesus. And that's what this is about. And so this morning, uh, before I introduce Lee, I wanted to say a couple things. One, raise your hand if you're a pastor this morning. Hey, look at that. It's multi-denominational. We got Presbyterians in here. We got, I think we have AME pastors in here. I think I saw a Methodist walk in. This is multi-racial, multi-denominational. And part of the beauty of Ephesians 2, as you're going to see with Lee and Leonce, is that not only does God say that we're made in the same divine image, but through the cross, he says that we're one household of God. And that's, that's reason to rejoice. And so today, when we're talking about race, because of the scriptures, because of the gospel itself, it's so easy for us to just weave in talking about race and talking about the gospel. And I had a couple people this week or in the last couple months, they're like, what is this about? And I said, well, we're just preaching the gospel. And it's, a, it's Ephesians 2, and that's what this is. This is a conference on Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, at the very beginning, the first 11 verses, is one of the most pristine, sublime presentations of the gospel, in, in my opinion, in the entire Bible. We're saved by grace through faith. And it's amazing how quickly Paul makes a beeline from the gospel to how the gospel shapes Jew and Gentile relations. And if the gospel can break down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, you better believe it can do it between blacks and whites. And so this morning, we're just going to celebrate that. This is a celebration, but it's also an acknowledgement that very seldom we have this conversation, and we need to, because we're the ones that got the good news. And if it doesn't begin in the church, it's not going to begin anywhere. And so without any further ado, I'd like to call up my brother Lee Parker. As he comes, I just want to introduce him. Lee is one of our shepherding leaders at Haynes Creek Campus. Lee is one of my dear brothers. He's someone who I wanted to speak both because he, because he has a great testimony, but because also he's born and raised in this community. Uh, and I think he's someone who is perfect um, to herald the good news that God has proclaimed that we have one people in Christ. So here's my brother Lee. Lee, here you go. Thank you all for being here this morning. I know Saturday at 10 a.m. this may not be your most ideal location, but I appreciate you taking some time out of your weekend to, to come and to be here with us. Um, as Abby said, I'm not a pastor by any stretch of the imagination, so this is a little bit of an intimidating uh, setting for me to be entirely transparent and honest with you. Um, 12, 16 hours ago, I was dealing with messy clients and issues and work-related things, and um, now here I am. So, 
Um, <clears throat> to get started this morning, I want to read Ephesians 2. Um, I want to start there. I want to start with the commonality of what's bringing us together. Um, and then we'll dive in from there to, to talk through a, a few implications of this passage um, as it relates to the topic of race. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse that's all familiar to us, but should resonate in our hearts. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Here's the, the beeline that I'll be talked about. So then... Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made no effect the law, he made no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross, and put the hostility to death by it. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access, we have access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. I know it's, it's a long passage, but I wanted to read it. I wanted us to hear it. I want us to know why we're here. I want us to see the, the context. What, what, what's the author talking about? I want to take a minute to unpack specifically verses 11 through 22 of that passage. Um, but before I do that, I, I want to give a few comments, caveats, if you will. 
Um, first, I want to start with the title of this talk. Um, the title we decided to give was In Another Man's Shoes. Um, I love titles for their brevity. I despise titles for their inability to fully communicate ideas. Um, when we say in another man's shoes, I am by no means under the impression that I know what it's like to live as a black person in America. I do not know what that experience is like. So I cannot truly sit here in front of you and say, I know what it's like to live life in America in another man's shoes, with that man specifically being a black man. I do not know what that is like. We chose that title because the work of the Holy Spirit in my own heart, in my own life, has, through God's grace, given me tidbits of insight into what that experience is like. And that's why I'm up here today. There's going to be a lot of conversation that happens after I'm done. But my goal, especially for those of you in this room who are white, is to set the ground for what this conversation is and why you should be attentive to it. I will use the terms black and I will use the terms white, not because I am insensitive, but because I want to be clear. I do not want to mince words. I do not want to create confusion. I want to be clear. For those of you who are here who are black, I apologize in advance for anything that I say that is insensitive or ignorant. I am by no means an expert on this topic. My heart truly is to share the experiences in my own life of what the Holy Spirit has brought me through in the past 24 to 18 to 24 months. I will give examples from my own life that are not intended to be damaging, um, but are intended to be honest and to be real and to help draw commonality for where many of us in this room may be today. For those of us in this room who are white, I'm probably going to say some things today that you aren't going to be terribly comfortable with. And that's okay. I'll walk through in a minute the, my own process of how I've dealt with this subject and how the Holy Spirit has dealt with me over the past two years. But I do want you to know this. It will be easy as I begin to talk for you to want to write me off as a progressive or as a liberal or as someone who doesn't understand the context of this community. Um, and I want to encourage you to push past that. As Avi said, I'm from this community. My family's been here for over 100 years. My parents have not lived anywhere that did not have a Covington, Georgia address in their entire lives. At one point, my family owned from the convergence of Monticello and Church Street all the way to the bypass on the south side of the square. So I grew up in this community. I'm politically conservative. We can't avoid the intersection of politics and this passage. And I'm not going to sit here and defend any political position, but for those of you who are in this church and who are here 
often and who are likely white, you probably lean politically conservative, and you're probably being told a narrative that is not completely true. Lastly, I want to say this. I don't know where everybody's at in this room when it comes to this issue, um, but I think, based upon the way that I was raised and the conversations that I've had with, with members of this community, that the beliefs I held 24 months ago were indicative of many white people in this community. So the comments I make today are not aimed in, in anger or in hatred. They are made simply in love. I want to be honest, I want to be true, and I want to clearly share with you the work of the Holy Spirit in my life over the past two years. One more note as we start to walk through the passage and through um, my experience with it. Um, if, you, if you are white, you're probably going to go through a bit of a process as you interact with the information you hear today. I mean, it will be, you may enter this process at different points, and I'm by no means a seven-step, fix-everything type of guy, but these are indicative of the way that I have interacted with this topic. First, you'll probably be inclined to just dismiss the facts. You're hear things and you're going, oh, well, that's not true. Eventually, that will give way to acceptance of the facts. Acceptance of the things you're hearing, of other people's experiences, of, of history, of the Word of God, and embracing of those facts. That will likely give way to anger. You will likely become angry at some point today. I want to encourage you to not stop there. When that wells up within you, continue to listen, continue to seek to understand, because I've been there. I'll share with you from my testimony, I, I got to a place where I was, I was so worked up in my spirit that I just wanted to knock out the next person that came in front of me. That's okay. Push through it. Push through it. Don't give up. That will likely give way to a feeling of regret and a curiosity to learn more which if, if we can get to that point, we've, we've taken a step. We've put our biases behind us. We're willing to listen, engage, and learn. Probably be some fear at some point that you feel, that you feel at the, the implications of, wow, I, I've thought one thing for most of my life, and that may be wrong. And I may need to give that up and, and, and take on a new, new position, a, a renewing of the mind, if you will. And by the grace of God, I pray that at some point I'm not foolish enough to think today that we're going to solve all the issues related to this topic. We will not. But my prayer for us sincerely is that we continue to seek the Lord, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and that he aligns our stance toward this issue with his mindset and his desires. Okay, enough caveats. So where are we going to go today? We're going to spend a little time in Ephesians 2, unpacking verses 11 through 22. From there, I'm just going to share with you my story of interacting with this text. And then from there, we'll talk briefly about 
implications of, of what we can do. What does this mean for us? So starting in verse 11 of Ephesians 2, we start to see this, this comparison, this, this drawing of a division. So then remember that you at one time were Gentiles in the flesh, drawing out the, the differentiation between Jew and Gentile, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. There's another division, circumcised, uncircumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. Um, that phrase right there is, has stuck out in my mind day after day after day, because um, the more as I understand the concept of race, um, I start to realize that it, it really is just that. It's something that's done, by, done in the flesh by human hands. We'll talk a little bit about more of that, more of that later, but keep that in your mind. Um, at that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So all throughout verses 11 and 12, you have division. Gentile, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, those with hope, those without hope, those who are citizens, those who are not. Skip down to verse 19, you get a very different tone, very different message. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, the whole building being put together by him, grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So whereas we had Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, with hope, without hope, we now have no longer strangers, no longer foreigners, one household, a holy sanctuary unto the Lord. I think this bears the question of, well, what happens? How, how did this division cease to exist? How, was, how did this coming together occur? I think it's worth noting that, that it may be easy to think, well, I mean, the differentiation between Jew and Gentile is nothing like the division that we have today that is black and that is white. And I would say, au contraire. Jew and Gentile was ethnic, it was religious, and it was racial. These were, these were groups that could be no further apart, could be on no, opposite end, no further on opposite ends of the spectrum than they are. So it begs the question, what happened? How was the division crossed? How was the division mended? How was this coming together? How did this coming together occur? Verses 13 through 18 give us the answer. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Verse 14 gives me great hope every time I read it. It says, For he is our peace, who made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. I exhort us today to work to bring that to reality. One, he, he is our peace, 
made both groups one, tore down the dividing wall of hostility, and created in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So the, I believe for those of us who, who are in Christ that the source of the change is clear. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Died, resurrected, rose again, who gave his blood on our behalf, who was our sacrifice to set us free from the bondage of our own sin. Let me be clear. We could spend months mining the depths of verses 13 through 18. There is so much there that literally I could put you to sleep talking about it over the next five days. Just keep going. I mean, there's so much there. I encourage you to mine those depths, to discover those depths, but we're not going to rest there today for the sake of our, our conversation. So what are the implications of this? Of this reconciliation of foreigners through the person of Jesus Christ in his gospel? First, I want to be clear about this. First, it means that there is a new people. One new man, as verse 15 said, we just read it. That is so free from enmity and so united in truth and peace that God himself is there for all of our joy, and for his glory forever. That's the aim of this reconciliation. That is the primary thing here. That primary thing is a place for God to live amongst us, all of us, and make himself known and enjoyed forever and ever. That's the primary thing. That's the primary thing. But... It also has a secondary implication. The secondary implication that can be powerful in bringing that primary thing to reality. The design of the death of the Son of God is not only to reconcile us as individuals to God, but to also reconcile alienated ethnic groups to each other in Christ. It's the reason Paul made that beeline, outlined all the graces of God, our salvation in Christ, and it goes directly to the discussion of Jew and Gentile. We will better display and magnify the cross of Christ by more and deeper and sweeter ethnic diversity and unity in our collective worship, and our collective lives. If we really and truly believe Ephesians 2, it is not permissible for 11 a.m. on Sunday morning to be the most segregated hour in American society. If we really believe that, if we really, we all, we all especially 
white evangelicals love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's like Awana 101, right? Like every kid coming up to Awana knows Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I grew up in the church. I did not know the rest of Ephesians chapter 2 until I was 25 years old. So I think the implication of the passage is clear for us. I want to spend a few minutes talking about my history with this passage. This may be where it gets a little sticky for us all, so stay with me. 24 months ago, roughly, um, this church, First Baptist Covington, brought into town um, some church planners that we were sponsoring around the country. Um, one of those gentlemen is a church planner in Missouri, and very unassumingly, my wife Sarah and I were asked to take him and his wife to dinner while they were here, just as an act of hospitality, hospitality just to treat them well. Not hostility. We don't want to be hostile. No hostility. Although I will tell you, the conversation became hostile at one point. We'll get there. Maybe it was hostility all along. Who knows? Um, so we go pick them up, we go down to Madison, go to dinner. We do all the general, like, get to know you type of questions. How did you meet? Do you have kids? You know, all these types of things that we do. Um, I did not know this gentleman at all. I have great respect for him now, but was very caught off guard. When we had finished dinner, we were in the car, and we were just kind of driving around Madison on our way back to Covington. If you've been to Madison, which I assume most of us have, Beautiful antebellum homes, lots of history. Had I known where this gentleman was going to go, I probably would have skipped the tour of Madison. But, so we're driving through the streets of Madison. My wife and I sitting in the front, him and his wife sitting in the back. And he goes, so I got a question. I was like, okay, sure, shoot. He goes, what's the deal with the Confederate battle flag? I was like, uh, okay, white guy. Mind you, white guy. He said, what, what, why, why is this continuing to be a conversation in the South? This guy's from Missouri. Um, my answer at the time, I now know, was incredibly ignorant. I said to him, <laughs> this is even hard for me to say now. I said to him, I said, I just wish the conversation would go away. So I feel like every time it comes up, it just divides and causes issue and causes hostility. There you go. It's an incredibly ignorant and dismissive comment. Um, thankfully, through the grace of the Lord, that pastor was very patient with me and reproved me to consider the implications of what that flag means. Um, in his home state of Missouri, it has very deep implications. And he went on to explain those implications to me. And that's the first time in my life at age 28 that someone had ever explained that to me. I grew up with this whole heritage versus hate conversation. I thought, eh, well, you know, it's just a flag. What's the big deal? That's step one. Step two, probably nine months after that, 
Josh Cornett, the, the former pastor at the church at Haynes Creek, who's now with his family in Mexico, wanting to go to the field in Colombia as missionaries with the International Mission Board. He called me and he said, hey, this was right after um, Philando Castile had been shot. He said, I want, I want to address this issue in our church. I said, okay. <laughs> what role do you see for me in that? He said, well, I want you to address this issue. And I said, what? <laughs> like, at, totally unprepared to address this topic. He said, I, I want you to, to end the service, take some time, recognize what had been done, and then pray for us as a congregation as to how we can interact with the issue. I said, okay. Thankfully, this was on Tuesday, so it gave me five days to get my act together, all of five days. Literally, when, when Josh asked me to do this, I had no idea what I was going to say. Because if I'm truthful with you, I didn't really care. I didn't. Half and far away, didn't affect people that looked like me, didn't care. So when Josh asked me, I was like, well, what in the world am I going to say? Thankfully, by the grace of the, the Lord, I have a strong conviction that if I'm going to get in front of a group of people and discuss with them the Word of God and spiritual issues, that A, I'm going to do it from a place of integrity, and B, I better have heard something from the Lord about that issue before I get up there. And it was amazing as I started to look, look at this issue through that lens, what I started to see about myself. And about this issue. Conversation at dinner led to this moment. I literally spent five days finding everything I could find on this issue. Just reading, trying to soak it up. Some of you who are in this room were there that day. When I spoke into this issue, I prayed that prayer. I am thankful abundantly for that moment because it literally changed my life. The work, I, have, I have very few points in my life where I have seen the work of the Holy Spirit through conviction in my heart more than in those moments, preparing to stand in front of a congregation of people for 10 minutes to address this issue. My, my, my research led me tons of different directions. I had to start digging into, okay, well, I can't address this without thinking through Black Lives Matter. It's here, it's in front of us. It's an issue that needs to be addressed. I started looking at the shootings of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, Alton Sterling, Flando Castile, and a host of others. I remember, I still remember watching some of those videos and just being horrified. Hard things, just hard, hard, hard things to watch and to see. And even as hard as they were, it still didn't break down my own biases and hostility in my heart. I told you earlier that throughout this process, I got to a place where I was angry. It was actually a book that made me angry. 
And I'm thankful it made me angry now. At the time, I was not so enthused about my anger. I was reading a book called Trouble I've Seen by Drew Hart. Probably not a book especially most white people have read. I literally got through two chapters and I was so infuriated that I threw the book across the room. And it was in that moment that I felt the twinge of the Holy Spirit say, whoa, what's that? Why are you so angry reading a man telling his story? It was in that moment of anger that the Holy Spirit started to to change my heart. So it's not okay to have indifference towards these things. It's not okay just to look on my black brothers and sisters in a dismissive tone and just say, why are they still complaining? From there, because of my anger, I I turned turned to to people that I trusted and that I knew because I was angry and I was like, well, Maybe this guy's just out in left field. I need somebody to, to give me some, some truth I can receive right now. And there are a lot of different sources there. Um, yet again, by, I know we're not all necessarily reformed here, so I'll use this term somewhat lightly, the providence of the Lord. I, I had met briefly, I met Leonce Crump at a, at a seminar. I worked for a CPA firm. Our CPA firm had put on a conference, and Leonce spoke at the conference. And it was right as I was dealing with this issue. So I was like, well, here's a guy that I've heard, I respect. Let's see what he has to say about the issue. So I went, I listened to him, listened to Russell Moore, John Piper, Matt Chandler, and a host of others talk about this issue. And the Holy Spirit just kept working and working and working saying indifference is just not okay. And I started to see in my conversations with other white people that this bias still existed. This indifference still existed. There were some tense conversations that I had. I mean, you, you, you tried to explain to someone who has held a specific position on this issue for 40 years that you don't agree with them anymore, when they say to you, no, 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 yeah, 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 black lives matter, but all lives matter, and you try to have that conversation about how that's dismissive and entirely missing the point of that conversation, or you try to say, yeah, no, there, there, there really is an issue with you hanging a Confederate battle flag outside of your house and wondering why there's hostility that still exists. It's the first time that I heard about the talk. Um, yet again, when I say the talk, that generally occurs between a dad and his son, most white people think that means the birds and the bees. I think most black men in here would tell us that talk is very different. That's talk about how you get home from a traffic stop alive. I never had that talk. Not a conversation my dad and I ever had to have. But for a host of our society, that's a very real issue. Very real issue. From there, the the Holy Spirit 
led me to, to start researching this topic called whiteness, which sounds very odd. It's like, what, what is this? Um, I implore you to go there, especially if you're white, to start researching the history of whiteness. And there's a lot there. We could, we could spend hours, hours, days. Literally, we could be here the rest of the year unpacking Ephesians 2, 13 through 18 and discussing whiteness and the implications of the two together. The, the, the big takeaway for me is that as I started to look at the history of whiteness is that, that white has been used throughout human history to exploit other races. We, we, we love being white. We love white privilege. We wouldn't say that necessarily, but just when it starts to get crept in on and starts to get impinged on, just watch our reaction. And that'll tell you a lot about how you view your whiteness and your white privilege. My wife and I were in Chicago for um, a conference. Not a conference for me, a conference for her. She was at a conference, I went on vacation. And um, Chicago History Museum was featuring a, um, a display, an exhibit aimed at this idea of race and just exploring the history of race, those sorts of things. So while my wife went to her wonderful conference about medical data, I went skipping across Chicago to go take a look at this exhibit. Found some things that were incredibly intriguing. There, there, I think in our minds, we, living in 2018 now, race is a reality that we deal with, clearly. But I think it's important for all of us to realize that the differentiations that we see in race are what I said earlier. They are these things that are done in the flesh by human hands. <clears throat> human, human Genome Project released, President Clinton was in office, so 20 years ago roughly, studied the, the entire human genome. You wanna know what they wanna found? You don't wanna know what they, they found? Genetically, an individual for, from Zimbabwe has more in common with a Swedish person than they do with a person from Somalia, genetically. So that begs the question of, okay, so race is this human-created thing. We're, we're genetically, we're not any different. We have different pigmentation of skin because of the melatonin levels in our body, but genetically, we're no different. So, it's, so then that starts to create in your mind, okay, where did this whole racial divide come from? And that brought me to my, my next discovery that I had been taught in American history that was sorely incomplete. I went to a, went to a Christian school. I loved my school. But probably similar to some of you, I was taught history by a middle-aged man who was a coach and they couldn't find anybody else to teach history. So they said, hey, will you do this? Which at the time, I didn't really see the issue. I was like, whatever, it's history, it's easy. I know more than this guy does, it's fine. I don't have an issue with it. 
And I, I still, I remember it vividly. It's like 10th grade U.S. history. My history teacher literally spent three days defending the notion that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery and everything to do with states' rights. Totally dismissing the issue. And this is what, I mean, this is what I was taught. This is what I knew. I've realized over the past 24 months that there's an entire side of American history that I just don't know. There are writers, there are contributors to American history from the black perspective that I didn't even know existed. And I will tell you now, I am not an expert on that topic. But I realize I know about this much of a topic that's as big as this entire room. There are authors I have not read. There are perspectives I do not know. But I think we have to realize as white people that we, we don't see the whole picture that we can't be in another man's shoes necessarily. We don't know what it's like to live as a black man or woman in this country. We don't know, that, we don't know what it feels like to have 250 years of history behind us of slavery and lynching and segregation and bias and hatred leveled toward us. One last thing that it's kind of a mile marker on my 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 travels along this walk with the Holy Spirit of conviction, that same exhibit had, had a section that talked about the implications of the GI Bill. Now, GI Bill, probably one of the most significant pieces of American legislation in the past 150 years, since the Civil War. I always kind of grew up with this mentality that somehow, and it was very subtle, like I, would, I could have never told you it or verbalized this 24 months ago, that, that somehow white people were superior because they had accumulated more wealth. Like I think that was, it was ingrained in my mind, but I couldn't verbalize it. I was just walking through this exhibit, came across this portion about the GI Bill. Part of the GI Bill was aimed at providing affordable housing for those who were coming back from the war, from World War II. What I did not know about the GI Bill is it did do that, but that segregation was inherent within the GI Bill. Levittown, Pennsylvania, a community largely developed at the, the beck and call of the GI Bill. Black people were not allowed to buy a house in Levittown, Pennsylvania. And you say, okay, yeah, segregation, we get it. But here's what stood out to me. A white person returning from World War II could have bought a house in Levittown, Pennsylvania for $8,000. The house today is worth over $450,000. A black person could have bought a house, similar community in Pennsylvania, paid the same $8,000. That house today, worth $25,000. And we wonder why this 
wealth gap exists, it's not because we as white people are superior. It's because we as white people have segregated and put down and not allowed people of different races to have the same opportunities that we've had. So all this led me to this realization. Realization that I had been the problem. I read, I could have told you 24 months ago, I read the end of Ephesians 2 and I want to see verse 19 happen. I want to see us be no longer foreigners and strangers. I want to see us black and white, be fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. I want to see that happen. I would have told you that 24 months ago. I did not realize that I was the problem that was stopping that from happening. I was. Looking in the mirror, I was the problem. I had hidden biases all over the place that caused me to fear true equality in this country. And I use the word fear very specifically. And I want you to think about that implication. Uh, a white young man fearing equality. And as I've processed through that, I've realized that the reason that I fear equality is I have seen a history of how minorities in this country have been treated, and I don't want to be one. And that's nobody's fault but my own. Because I have perpetuated the system for 28 years and probably am still perpetuating it as I learn more about this topic and research and more myself. I liked my privileged position, and while I did not necessarily want to harm a black person per se, I had hidden prejudices that were stopping, stopping me from really seeing how I was preventing Ephesians 2 from becoming a reality. I was refusing to see in certain areas a black person as a full image bearer of God. I was not pursuing the reality of fellow citizens as a holy sanctuary in the Lord because of my own biases, complacency, and desire to be comfortable in my views and condition. So I'll close with a, with a few thoughts. What does this mean for us today? First implication that I want us to draw out is that if we as a collective church, not First Baptist Covington, but global church, if we want to see Ephesians 2 come to pass, especially in this country and in this context, I want to be very clear, white people have to own the history, own the problem, and fix it. And that's not to be dismissive towards black people, that's to say, those of us in this room who are white, at some point along this process, you'll real, we'll start to realize our error. And the first thing we'll want to do is, is to expect black people to come to us and understand our position. It's not okay. That's not what, that is not Ephesians 2. It is not okay for us as white people to be ignorant of history and context. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of ills that have occurred in this country and for us to say, no, no, we're white. You come meet us on our terms and then we can make Ephesians 2 happen. No, that is not the answer. 
What else does it mean? It means that we owe it to our black brothers and sisters as white people to educate ourselves and to be advocates for them. Do not be, do not be ignorant. That's all I can tell you. And I, I mean that with the most sincere love because I, I've been there. But do not be ignorant. It's been well-touted Martin Luther King Jr.'s fears that, that racism would continue to prevail in this country, not because of the KKK, but because of white moderates who would not raise their voice. And I would stand here and tell you today that that fear is very real. So the question for us as white people is, when are we going to say we've had enough? When are we going to say we've messed up? We have really messed up and we're going to work to fix this issue. We're not going to stand back and wait for somebody to come to us out of a position of privilege, but we're, we're going to humble ourselves, we're going to seek to understand, we're going to educate ourselves, and we're going to work to see Ephesians 2, through the reconciling love of Christ, become a reality. One note there. As you work to educate yourself, you're probably going to feel as a white person this this pull or this tug to reach out to you know one of the one of the the black individuals that you know and and ask them to educate you in this process i understand the the pull and the tug but that can be very patronizing it can be very hurtful and be very harmful you have to take that initiative for yourself Trust me, google.com, you can go a very long way down this road of educating yourself and crossing that bridge without being patronizing to your black brothers and sisters. I want to close with this. This conversation is very poignant in this place, amongst this body. This, this beat-up old book put together in 1973, 150-year 150, celebration of First Baptist Covington. Miss Sarah Gray compiled this, and um, it's more a collection. It's history, but it's more a collection of the minutes of this, this body. Something here stands out very poignantly to me. In the section from the 1850s to the 1860s, the only minutes from 1865 read this, as Columbus, Georgia was occupied by the enemy. So no Georgia Baptist Convention was held. The following years were sad, gloomy, almost hopeless, but the spark of Christian faith bore testimony to the substance found in the hearts of our great-grandparents or ancestry. That's 1865. Skip forward to 1866. By the way, before I get to this, if you can ever put your hands on this book, you should read it. There's some very comical things in here about people. Literally, there, there's one gentleman in this book he was excommunicated from this body six times and restored seven. So it's, 
It's great. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have the conversation about church discipline later. So, September 22nd, 1866, this body, First Baptist Covington, this church, September 22nd, 1866, I quote from the minutes of this church, considered the condition of the colored members of this church and appointed two o'clock on the fourth Sabbath in October in order to grant letters to all who all may be found worthy, recommending them to form a church of their own. According to their souvenir, this is not from the minutes, this is narrative by the author. According to their souvenir program, they, being the colored members of the church, were separated from the white members who called their church Covington Baptist Church. That's where we sit today. And so the blacks retained the name Bethlehem and today is known as the Bethlehem Baptist Church located on Usher Street. That's our context. This is the the congregation that we sit in. This issue is knocking at our door. So the question to us is, what are we going to do about it? Will we continue to sit around in white privilege, with hidden bias, perpetuating a corrupt system that has existed for thousands of years, but specifically in this country for 250 years? Or will we finally say, as moderate white people, enough is enough? that tomorrow is a new day, that we will be aware of our history, that we'll be aware of our context, that we will educate ourselves, that we will understand the world in which we live, and that we will work in all humility and understanding through the reconciling love of Christ to bring Ephesians 2 to pass. That is the question for us today. So I ask you, specifically as white people, that as you hear the conversations that happen the rest of today by people who are far more knowledgeable than I am, that you listen with soft hearts and that when you reach those moments of anger or dismissiveness, that you put them aside, that you push through, that you listen, that you understand, and then you leave here and you go and you educate yourself. And you start to find ways to bring Ephesians 2 to pass. I close with this. It's very timely. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at chapel at Southern Seminary, which is close to, that seminary is close to many hearts in this room. Pastor Cody graduated from there. Pastor Abby has been educated there. He spoke at chapel at Southern Seminary, I think it was 1961. His topic was very similar to what we're talking about today. 
rewind the clock 60 years, similar conversation. The topic of that day was segregation. And Dr. King mentioned on that day the, the ill of the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning being the most segregated hour in American society. He closed with this, and I close us with it today. He said, in conclusion, let me say that we must have faith in the future, the faith to believe that we can solve this problem, the faith to believe that as we struggle to solve that as we struggle to solve this problem, we do not struggle alone, but we have cosmic companionship. We have the God of Ephesians 2. We have the redeeming Savior of Ephesians 2. Oh, before the victory is won, some people have to get scarred up. Before the, vi- before the victory for brotherhood is won, some people like Peter and Paul will have to go to jail. Before the victory for brotherhood is won, there will be others who will have to be called bad names, who will have to be misunderstood and misrepresented and misquoted. Before the victory is won, some will have to lose jobs and suffer and sacrifice. Who will be a part of that creative minority that will stand firm on an issue that will help bring that will help us bring into being the kingdom of God, knowing that in the process, God struggles with us. And so with this faith, we move out into the vast possibilities of the future. And if we will go on with this faith and this determination to struggle, we will be able to bring into being this society of brotherhood, transforming the gangling discords of our Southland into a beautiful symphony of peaceful relationships. And this will be the day, figuratively speaking, that the morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. I pray for us today that that may be. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We thank you that you are a God who who saw fit to to give us precious texts that speaks to the very heart of the issues that we deal with 2,000 years later. God, I, I pray for all of us in this room from different racial backgrounds, different denominational backgrounds, I pray that we would be dedicated to this cause, that we will seek to amplify the glory of the gospel by bringing the truth of the oneness of Christ into reality. God, I I pray that you work in our own individual hearts, that you soften our biases, that you soften our hardness of heart, and that you make us receptive receptive to the the conviction of the Holy Spirit, receptive of that that abiding love that that chastens us. God, I pray that you grant us all humility, all peace, and all joy as we continue this conversation today. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother.
Wow. Thank you, Lee. Um, Lee is not only one of the most genuine people at our church, he's actually one of the best dressed at our church as well. Um, and so he is a dear brother and uh, someone that, uh, as you can see, God has really convicted him, not only given him a knowledge of the scriptures, but um, enabled him to share his testimony uh, in, a, in a unique way. And um, I think you hit the nail on the head, Lee, that you stepped on a lot of us, um, and me too. Um, and I think at the end, he really... Um, that conviction, I hope, is one that we will absorb uh, and own and meditate on and, and come back to the scriptures. Um, so thank you. You all have about five minutes to use the restroom, get some coffee. By the way, we got free books still here on the table. Those are for you. They're free. Um, so do as you wish. And then in five minutes, we're all going to open up these doors and we're going to serve lunch.